Welcome back to Women Leading in Cannabis, where we go deep and get real with the pioneering women shaping the cannabis industry. You can find us on the PodConnects Network, on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis. Tell me, boy, you make me so bored. You need to walk the other way. I tell you once more. I'm your host, Kira Reed. I'm here today with Frederica Easley. Welcome to the show, Frederica. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Likewise, likewise. Again, thank you so much for having me. Frederica Easley is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the People's Ecosystem and host of the People Are Blunt podcast. Having experienced social inequities as an African-American woman in a white male-dominated field, she pulls from her experience to bring knowledge and efforts that promote community engagement and inclusivity. In 2021, she transitioned into cannabis professionally as the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the People's Ecosystem. As an experienced strategist, she analyzes federal and state policies with an equity lens to identify areas of opportunity and advocacy. Frederica earned her degree in Communications and Creative Studies from the State University of New York College and has built a career as a skilled strategist with over a decade of experience in campaign development and crisis management. Wow, I'm really looking forward to digging in with you today. Um, but let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with your story. How did you find yourself in the cannabis industry, particularly focused on community and equity? Well, again, thank you for having me. So as most things in life um, have happened for me, I've, I was kind of pulled in. Um, I'd spent about a decade, decade and a half working in labor, specifically for a teacher's union focused on all of those uh, things in terms of equity and, you know, the shifting of power. I found myself at a transition point, honestly, having been burnt out from a ton of time on the road. I, I liken my life during that time in labor to uh, the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air, right? So I was literally on a plane every week, um, probably in a hotel 300 out of the 365 days of the year um, and just, you know, living out of a suitcase. And so quite frankly, was burnt out. And at the same time, my husband and I found out that we were expecting um, our son. And so, of course, you know, that road life was no longer for me, but intrinsically, I am motivated to, um, to, to root for the underdog and to try to shift those power dynamics, making sure that people who are usually in a disadvantaged position have an opportunity uh, to, to change that and to have a seat at the table. And if the table is not big enough, then 
uh, we need a bigger table, right? We need to to elbow our way in and make some space. And so uh, Christine De La Rosa, who is the CEO of the People's Ecosystem, she and I have a mutual uh, best friend. And when she heard of my transitioning and you know the fact that I was going to be available, she started planting these seeds. And the more and more I learned about what was going on in the cannabis industry, the more I knew that I had to, I had to become involved. Um, and in this way, in a way of uh, not just on the sidelines, but, but being on the field and drawing attention to something that I'm very familiar with um, because the area I grew up in is one of those, one of many areas that were impacted, negatively impacted by um, the war on drugs, specifically cannabis prohibition and the the disparately impacted uh, policies and, and and criminalizing policies that was attached to it. So having had this background, a decade in campaign development and crisis management, how do you apply this to cannabis in your career now? And can you share a few examples with us? Sure. So, you know, life in general is about relationships. It's about meeting people where they are. It's about understanding. It's about doing a ton of listening. And that's what campaign work uh, essentially is about. It's knowing your audience, knowing what they want, um, what they need, because of course they're telling you, um, and then figuring out a way with them and with the other stakeholders who are involved, how do we get that, right? How do we get there? How do we get to a place where everyone essentially feels like they're winning and that they're getting that they're getting something out of the deal. You, you, at the end of the day, when you're negotiating and when you are running campaigns, it's imperative that both sides feel good, you know, in some way, shape or form about the conclusion that is reached. And so specifically how I bring that into the cannabis space is, you know, looking at language, giving giving our lawmakers, our policymakers, the benefit of the doubt in terms of hearts and minds being in the right place, but that we know there's a difference between theory and practice. And so working with them, partnering with them on making sure that they are not blind to the ways in which words will have impact. And so specifically, I'm looking at, I always look at, and like I said, partner um, whenever possible and sharing our insight, specifically from an operator standpoint of, you know, ways in which language can be strengthened uh, and ways in which unintentional harm can be caused or may be caused. And again, giving the benefit of the doubt that these, that the harms really would be unintentional. Uh, but we want to avoid them at all costs. So when you're dealing with campaigns and crisis, it's kind of outside of you, right? It's it's not something that's personally affecting you. It's something that's affecting others or the company. And so you're managing things. But what it, what challenges have you faced in cannabis as a woman, and particularly a woman of color, right? So those are things that are happening directly to you. How has your training enabled you to meet those challenges? Well, I was frequently or am frequently, uh, one of the only women in the room, one of the only women of color in the room. You know, it's interesting because MJ Biz, a couple of weeks ago, uh, released a report in regards to women in the C-suite and in ownership positions in cannabis. And 
The sad thing about that report was that the percentages have decreased, you know, from 2017, 2018 to now, the number of companies, whether they're ancillary or plant touching, um, the number of of, of C-suite management positions that women hold in cannabis at one point was about 36%, 35.9, and is now about 27%. Um, and so we are seeing uh, the cannabis industry start to mirror what a lot of other industries that are already established mirror how, how their makeup is. And so personally, uh, again, you know, just being in a space where more often than not, I am one of few or the only being a black woman. And there's a, there's a whole, you know, intersectionality of, of how this applies, right? Because we know that like colorism is a thing. And so I am a black woman of a darker complexion. I am a natural haired black woman. And so there, there are layers um, to, if we're looking at the, the, the totem pole of privilege in our society, um, there are layers in terms of where people fall, right? And we know at the top of that pole are cisgendered white men. Um, and we know at the bottom of the pole, you know, are, are Black women, okay? And so I am one of those. And so, you know, even in cannabis, uh, you know, with the different, you know, committees I'm on, um, different, you know, rooms I'm in, conversations I'm having, again, usually one of the only or one of the few in the space. And so it is very important to me that I am both my authentic self, but that I am also raising the awareness that this should not be and paving the way for others, um, you know, who look like me, you know, those who are on that lower end, if you will, of the totem pole for them to be in the space. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I appreciate the rooms that I'm able to um, to be in. However, there's a load that comes with that. And so I don't want to be the only person. It's not helpful for me to be the only woman, to be the only Black woman in the space. And what we know is that diversity is important, not just, you know, from a humanity perspective, but it's also important in terms of profitability. We know that companies that have diverse boards that have, you know, women at the forefront actually perform better. And it's because, you know, women are, we are great multitaskers. We often, as a, as a, as a part of our survival, um, our survival skills, but we are in tune with others, how, how our actions impact others, if you will. And so we bring all of that into a space with us you know, oftentimes it's without there being actual thought to that. It's just, you know, how we operate in spaces. Um, and so, like I said, having diverse boards, um, decision-making bodies, having women at the helm actually boosts profitability. And this is not something that I'm just kind of guesstimating here. There's data to prove it. Yeah. And a simple Google search will actually show that this research has been done and reported on by countless institutions this is not it's not secret knowledge you have to dig around for it's out there (laughs) you know but it's not something that is at the forefront of these conversations that we have and one of the things that I tell women in my community is 
you know, lead with that, lead with the fact that women and people of color in businesses make them more stable, um, higher revenue, lower turnover, and better morale. You know, it's, it's everything you want for your business. So I, I wish that more people understood that that was just reality. It's not a fantasy. Absolutely. And there's a whole demographic, right? Like the, the more diverse your, your decision-making body is, right? You're pulling from all of that. And so there, there are, you know, there are whole populations that you may not be tapping into because you've not expanded, you know, that scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on a real personal level, you spend a lot of your day working and advocating for others who are disenfranchised, who have been pushed out of the system, who have been unfairly discriminated against. And then you yourself have suffered at that same experience. Where, what is it, where is it that you find it in yourself to get up every day and continue the fight when you're carrying so much weight already? Where do you get the fight in you to keep going and to fight not just for yourself, but for others? That's a really good question. Um, (laughs) So first thing that comes to mind is that it is honestly easier for me to fight for other people than it is for for me to fight for myself. And, you know, part of it is because I look at myself as being a, a strong Black woman, um, which can also oftentimes be to our detriment. But the the idea, my personal idea in terms of what I can handle and what I can carry is skewed in, in, in many ways. I feel that I can carry sometimes more than than what I what I can or what I should. But in terms of other people, there's a I guess a protective lens there that maybe I don't think that they can carry as much or, and, or honestly that I don't want them to, right. The fact that I am carrying what I carry, I don't want others to have to carry it. It almost makes me feel like my carrying is in vain if other people are also having to do the same thing. And then the other thing is, look, you know, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, I'm a great aunt, I'm a mother, I'm a wife. But for all of these, all of these people, my hope, all of these, my loved ones, my hope is that what I am going through, what I've had to go through, that they won't. And so that is what keeps me going. I mean, I think, honestly, I don't know how not to fight, you know, just in terms of my lineage, you know, both my maternal and paternal side. I don't know how not to fight. I don't know how not to care about what people are going through. And and also, as I said, you know, I mean, I come from, I'm from Buffalo, New York, from Cold Spring, from the East Side. Um, and so I know how, I've seen how prohibition has torn families apart. I've seen how it has impacted communities. It is very traumatic. It's very traumatic that there are people who are now profiting and who are benefiting from the regulation of cannabis who have no attachment to that. And that there are also people who are still in jail, who are still serving time. I mean, just during the pandemic, you know, we saw that there were 4,000 federal inmates who were released from, from prison in efforts to keep 
COVID numbers down, right? And to um, deal with overcrowding. So those individuals were released. They were able to go back home to be with their families. Um, they started, you know, kind of reacclimating to 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 life outside of outside of bars, outside of being in a cell. And as things started to get to some kind of normalcy, then it was, you know, the conversation was putting them back in. And these are for nonviolent cannabis offenses. Now the Biden administration is, you know, is discussing after, of course, you know, a ton of uproar, but now they're discussing, you know, possibly um, extending clemency to these individuals. But honestly, if I can be frank, it pissed me off. I mean, we are, we're talking about lives here that we are essentially playing games with. Again, nonviolent cannabis offenses, people who have suffered, continue to suffer, and there's this this unknown air or this unknown predicament that they're in on if they're going to have to go back. If all the work that they've been doing since they've been out following, you know, whatever rules were put in place and trying to mend relationships and trying to, you know, get themselves together, um, if all of that is going to be taken away. And so those are the things that motivate me. Those are the things that keep me going and able to to call a spade a spade and shed light on things that I, I, I just feel are not right. So one of the things that I think is really missing in our world today is a vision for the future, something that we can aim for, something we can get excited about. And I'm curious, in your fight, what is it for? What is your vision for the future that we can all get on board with? Because no one is giving us a vision for the future. It's just a constant fight. And part of it is because we've been stuck in a system where nothing ever changes. But I feel like we've lost that that goal, that vision for what it can be. So what is your fight for? What is it that you want to see? What will the cannabis industry be if you get what you want? This plant can heal in so many ways. And we don't know the full extent of that. And that's not just uh, through consumption in terms of knowing all of the medical benefits of this plant. But in terms of the healing of communities, in terms of the healing of trauma that has been experienced because of the way in which this plant has been engaged with and, and, and politically played with in our country um, and actually abroad, right? A lot of U.S. policies have impacted um, the world, you know, through, you know, trade agreements and through, you know, U.S. positioning and things of that nature as a superpower. But healing, we have an opportunity to be a part of the shaping of an industry from the ground floor, if you will. You know, we have kind of surpassed that in terms of liquor, in terms of oil, uh, you know, tobacco, things of that nature. I mean, you know, the conglomerates are there, right? Like there are about five or six key, you know, companies that control all of that. And we have an opportunity here for communities that have been harmed, for people who have been harmed to build generational wealth, to heal themselves and their communities with the resources that are necessary to heal relationships. You know, I, I, I did an interview with um, Otha Smith 
the third of Tetragram. And we were talking about how his relationship with his father growing up was strained because of his cannabis use and because of all of the trouble that he got into, you know, from being arrested and pulled over and, you know, those kind of things, right? Being targeted as a Black man. And it actually put a strain on his relationship with his father. And just imagine if that didn't have to be. Like, just imagine if this plant was recognized for its medicinal properties and not just for, you know, medical patients, not just for cardholders, but I mean, honestly, anyone who consumes, you know, they're doing so um, from a wellness position. And I know like the connotation or the thoughts around recreational or adult use, you know, it's like Bill and Ted, Cheech and Chong, like, oh, you know, these, you know, lazy potheads, you know, whatever the case may be. But the reality is if you have conversations with people and you ask them, why, why do you consume? You will hear stories nine times out of 10 about, oh, it helps me sleep. It helps me relax. It, you know, it helps me deal with my anxiety or my, or stress or worry. And all of those are, are things that are attached to our wellness because we know when we're stressed, we know when we are anxious, we know when we are worried, we're releasing cortisol in our bodies. And we know that that, that causes harm. We know that stress really is the silent killer. So, you know, in, in terms of the healing, just imagine if these ideas of like reefer madness or, or the way in which, you know, Black and Latinx and Indigenous communities were targeted, if that had not been so. Imagine um, the difference in, in even familial relationships. What I imagine, what I want is healing. What I want is for people to not be forced to subject themselves to, um, to harm and some of these other substances like opioids um, that are highly addictive and be able to heal themselves, be free to heal themselves in the way in which they see fit. What are you most excited about and what are you most concerned about federal legalization? Ooh, excited. Excited about the possibilities because federal legalization means that cannabis is descheduled from a schedule one substance. Cannabis is is on the same level, was placed on the same level as heroin and crack. <laughs> it it is crazy. So excited about the possibilities of that not being the case and what it opens up. What I am concerned about is us not being ready for that. And by that I mean At this point, there is not one state that I can point to and say their regulated market is the best, that they have figured out equity, that they have figured out how to repair harm. There's no there's no state. There's not a state that I can point to. And so it worries me that we would totally open up Pandora's box before having some kind of roadmap of, okay, this is what's working. This is what's working the best. This is awesome. And then the conversation around federal legalization is, well, how does the federal government support this state? Right. Because we you know, there have been a couple of different bills that have been proposed. Right. We have the Moore Act. We have uh, CAOA. That's the uh, the Booker, Wyden and Schumer bill. 
We have the new States Reform Act that was just put forth by Rep. Mace. Um, and so all of those, you know, those bills have definitely have um, some similarities, but some huge differences. One difference would be in the tax structure, right? So we had the CAOA um, with a gradual increase of up to 25%, right, for federal for the federal tax. And we have the State Reform Act that I believe was tapped out at about like 3%. And so if you're looking at what states are already, you know, charging for taxes and then proposing an additional like 25% on top of that, I mean, that would, it's not sustainable. That would not be sustainable. And if we're talking about the transition or the transitioning of legacy operators, and and by the way, you know, the, the, the people's ecosystem, you know, also known as the people's dispensary or formerly known as the people's dispensary, all of it is tied into to our house. But Christine De La Rosa, our CEO and our CIO, Charlene Kaabai, you know, they transitioned from the legacy market, right? And so we know that the legacy market brings in about three times the revenue as the regulated market. And a big proponent of that is taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been hearing um, on Facebook people saying things like, oh, well, you know, we just have to stop buying taxed cannabis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of these taxes, especially in California, like it is crazy. It's insane. It's insane. I mean, and then again, because cannabis is still a Schedule 1, you have the 280E tax law, um, which means that, you know, if you're a plant touching business, you, you don't get to write off your your operating costs in the same way that a traditional business is able to. And so, I mean, it's it's a huge, it's a huge issue. It's a huge hurdle. Well, the taxes are high for the, for the um, operator, but they're also high for the consumer. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you'll hear these arguments um, and a lot of the legislation, you know, there's some cutting and pasting from, uh, from alcohol and tobacco. But if you, if you think about it, The reason why alcohol and tobacco, the intent behind that tax structure was to actually discourage people from using them because there are no benefits. There are no medicinal benefits to tobacco and to alcohol. And so I understand, you know, the ease in being able to 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 copy and to cut and paste and to. Um, to liken cannabis to alcohol, tobacco, something that's already established. Like, I get it. I get it. But we're really talking about apples to oranges here. And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to discourage people, uh, consumers, from purchasing from a regulated market. But that's exactly what we're going to be doing. As you said, you're already seeing it on Facebook. That's exactly the way in which um, things are being positioned. Because, you know, if Look, if I can if I can get from the legacy market what I need, say at thirty dollars, but buying it from a dispensary is it, it becomes forty five or fifty dollars. I mean, well, you're not really making it a difficult you know a difficult decision. Yes, except for the fact that your cannabis isn't tested. So especially if you're a medical patient, it just it it creates no win situations. Exactly, exactly, and and you're absolutely right. Like we want. We want to make sure that people are not harmed. Again, that's that's one of our, our one of our, our foundation pieces is that we are not uh, repurposing harm and we are not causing harm. And so testing is important. Testing, I mean, especially you know, um, 
just we know what can happen when corners are cut and things of that nature. But the other thing that we have to just kind of be honest about is that the legacy market is well established. And so you do have people who have very strong relationships with their legacy operator. They are used to and have grown accustomed to a certain quality, a certain trust that they know that these are not individuals who are stepping on. And by stepping on, I mean cutting with harmful materials, you know, they're, they're, they're medicine. So we have to factor that in. We have to be honest. Yes, there have been, you know, some horrible cases where we're seeing that, you know, people are cutting things with fentanyl or people are, you know, uh, not uh, cultivating uh, properly in terms of like pesticides and in terms of... Well, I've also seen people taking hemp and spraying THC isolate on it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so where you see those things, where you see those things are in spaces where either it's heavily or over overly regulated and or where there aren't any other options. So I'll give you an example. I'm in Texas. I live in Austin, Texas. And here we just have medical. Okay, and so there was recently a case um, regarding uh, Delta eight, like Delta eight and Delta nine. Well, you don't really see you don't you're not really hearing about that in like California. You're not really hearing about that in like Nevada in places where it's in Colorado in places where it's regulated and people can actually they have access to um, to quality THC. That's what they're going for. But in these places, in these states where it's not. That's where you're seeing these other products come up. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious. The California market has shifted really dramatically over the last few years. It's like January 2020, nobody had any money to pay bills and people were going out of business. By March of 2020, we were suddenly um, an essential service and things were great. And then 2021 is now back to where we were before. And there are operators who are saying, I can't keep up with the taxes. I am better off running the risk of being in the um, informal market, as Christine says. And, and, you know, and then I can still feed my family. So it's, you know, my husband is a part of a cannabis business that I don't know that they're going to survive. I, it just... It's it's a really brutal time. And, you know, I just interviewed the uh, director and one of the stars of Ladybugs, the documentary that was done um, a year prior to legalization and a year after legalization. And prior to legalization, the fear was the corporations are going to come in and take over, which happened. But now the corporations are being hit just as hard as the rest of everybody, the smaller operators, by the informal market? Well, a couple of thoughts on that. In terms of, you know, big business coming in and, you know, some of these MSOs and then and, and medical operators, things of that nature, are they being impacted? Yes. Do they have more resources? Yes. Are many of them already positioned with an understanding of long-term you know, the difference between short-term investments and long-term? Yes. And so many of them are, are ready, right? They, they are ready. They were mentally and, you know, in terms of funds, ready for the long-term game, right? Because they've been here before. They know, you know, they know how to play it, right? Like, I mean, if you are familiar with the Monopoly board, you know that as soon as you land on Park Place, 
you get it, okay? Because it may be a lot up front, but eventually, once you're able to start putting houses and develop it, uh, and someone lands on it, it's a big payday. And it could probably, you know, possibly bankrupt them. So the other thing in terms of what you said that, you know, a part of where they're being hit is from the informal or the the, the legacy market. I want to be careful. I want us to be very careful on positioning legacy operators essentially as the corporates for for the struggles, if you will. Well, um, I don't think it's legacy because I view legacy as people who've been in this game for a long time who helped establish the industry, who a lot of them really did try to make the leap. Yeah. But here in my hometown, uh, my family is having to sell their property because they are now surrounded by cartels Mm -hmm. who are all growing cannabis. And I know those are not legacy operators. Right, right. Right. They're buying up the property in an area where they know that policing is, cops can't do anything about it. They don't have the support. Right. So they are taking over. And they are pumping tons of cannabis into this into the market, yeah. and they're competing with all of these dispensaries and growers. And you know, even some who are in that legacy market, who may be in the informal market, they're still being hit. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you, thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. Um, and, and what you're speaking to is just the the price point being changed, right? Because of the flooding of product, and it becomes how do you how do you compete with that? How do you stand up? I would say a part of what happened in California was that, you know, when they initially regulated or opened it up for medical and even adult use, they did not stand up the business aspect of it immediately. And so that created this huge gray area. I know initially, you know, there were actual storefronts, like actual retail um, locations that were not technically legal, you know, and it was just, it it was, it was because policy was not there. And so people, you know, of course, if look, if you leave it open, someone's going to walk through that door. So, I mean, it's very unfortunate to hear about what's going on with your family and what they are, what they're suffering through. It's a very real thing, right? And, and it's what we're going through because we have this, this separation between what states are doing and what states are able to do and how states are progressing versus where we are federally. And that, I mean, that is one of the real harms. What you're describing is one of the real harms because a lot of our, a lot of our state governments, you know, um, they don't have the funds. They don't have the funds and they don't have the the resources to do what they need to do in order to make sure that what you're describing doesn't happen. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today, Frederica. Is there anything else that you want the women who are listening to know before we wind down? And please let us know where we can reach out to you. Yeah, I would just say um, there's room for you and there's a need for you in this industry. And do not worry about not having the experience and or the familiarity with cannabis, there are some things I I like to say that there's an art and science to things. And so as long as your heart is in the right place, whatever skills you currently have can be transferred. Um, But we need you in this space. We need your insight. We need your intuition. We need your care in this space to make sure 
that it does not become another lost industry and that the healing can be can be realized, you know, that we can reap the fruits from from labor that has already been done. In terms of where people can reach me at, I am, you know, I am on uh, LinkedIn as Federica Easley, Federica McClary Easley. I am on uh, Instagram as Classic with two Ks, 84. So that's K-L-A-S-S-I-K, 84. Um, again, we have, you know, I'm, you can also reach out to me on the People's Ecosystem or all of our pages, website, LinkedIn, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all of those good things. And uh, soon to be, you know, stay on the lookout for the individual, the people are blunt play, uh, pages, but I really, really appreciate the time that you and the platform that you have, um, that you've offered. And it's been great talking with you. It's been great talking with you too. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your journey with us today. Thank you. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to weicwomen.com. There you'll find all the details on membership for women working in cannabis. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a WEIC woman member or WEIC business member for benefits and access across the network. Again, for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Elland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.